everybody. You are listening to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast, where we will be tackling real financial issues so women can eliminate fear and take charge of their lives. I am your host, Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. So let's get to it. Gaslighting is sort of a systematic undermining of your own reality to the point that it makes you start to doubt your own reality. You know, when we had that conversation the other day, it really hurt my feelings. I never said that. I didn't say that. That's so weird that you would remember that. Yeah. Like, I, I never said that. Wait, what are you talking about? Like, I totally remember that. You said blah, 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 blah. No, I didn't. Right? And they sound really reasonable about it. And you start to go, wait a minute. Am I, am I crazy? <laughs> like, I've got to record all my conversations with this guy from now on. <laughs> right? If you start to feel like you have to record your conversations to remember what happened in your relationship, it's not a good sign for the relationship. It's out. That sounds to me like abuse. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Today, I'm really excited about this one because we're going to talk about some topics that are, you know, really near and dear to my heart. And also because I've experienced a lot of these very same issues in my own life. And as anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, I had a disastrous divorce and I probably should have ended that marriage about a billion years before I did. So I don't know about you, but when you're in a marriage and you're thinking about a marriage, do you ever ask yourself the question, should I stay or should I go? I mean, besides being a song by The Clash, this is also an online coaching program that um, my next guest runs. And she also has a million other things about helping people sort of navigate these decisions about how to extricate themselves, perhaps from a marriage they're not happy in and actually not being paralyzed by fear, but actually making the decision to do so in a logical and systematic way. So I would like to welcome today Kate Anthony, and she is the author of The D Word, Making the Ultimate Decision About Your Marriage. This book will be coming out on December 26th. You can pre-order it now. So go on Amazon or go to your local bookstore site, whatever, and pre-order the book because it's going to be, uh, I think, highly instructive and very helpful to many people who go through this very difficult decision-making process. In addition to that, she is the host of the critically acclaimed New York Times recommended podcast, The Divorce Survival Guide podcast. And she's got a lot of listeners, so she's doing something right. She's giving out a lot of good advice. And she's also the creator of the groundbreaking online coaching program called Should I Stay or Should I Go? This program helps women make the difficult decision of whether or not they should stay or go. And it's a combination of coaching tools, education, as she says, geeky neuroscience, community support, and deep self-worth. So welcome, Kate. I'm super excited to get into this with you because I think so many people are going to walk away and say, wow, this is a great resource for me because there are many people out there struggling with this very decision. There sure are. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. So how did you get to be doing this? <laughs> I mean, this is kind of a niche business. So what yeah. happened? How'd you get there and, and why? Well, I like you, like most of us in this space, I went through it. <laughs> and, you know, when I was going through really trying to make this decision, it was, I was struggling with the decision to stay or go for a couple of years. I mean, I think we really do, right? Like when all said and done, like nobody's making this decision on a whim, <laughs> 
know. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. You know, we most of us have been struggling with this question for a good long time. And for me, it was a couple of years. And this was before there was Instagram or podcasting or, you know, 14, almost 15 years ago. And we didn't have all these resources. And so I really was felt like I was alone. I didn't I didn't understand what was happening to me. I didn't have the words to really explain uh, why I felt the way I felt in my marriage. And I didn't have, I, you know, I just didn't have any tools. Um, and so I was, I was asking myself this question all the time. Like, should I, should I stay or should I go? And eventually I asked a friend of mine and he said, you know, when you know, you'll know. And I was like, uh... The point is, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm asking you because I'm like, ah, how do you how do you know? So he said, you know, when you know, you'll know. And ultimately, I did when I knew I knew. And then my ex-husband and I went through a very, a really amicable, lovely divorce. Uh, it was a weird thing to say, but it was pretty unusual. <laughs> you know, people couldn't, they were like, how did you go from that marriage to this divorce? Yeah. I mean, I'm curious about that too, because yeah. um, our our divorce was a nightmare. It took yeah. years. Well, look, I mean, I think at the end of the day, sometimes it's just luck. It's dumb luck that I had, that I was divorcing somebody who was willing to put the gloves down and just be like, all right, what are we going to do? And how are we going to make this work for our kid? Right. We both had that commitment. And was that yours? Whose suggestion was it to get divorced? Yours or your spouse's? Oh yeah, it was me. I was, I was done. You know, he was, he was emotionally and psychologically very abusive for a very long time. And so, but once I said like, I'm not doing this anymore, you know, he then became, of course, all full of self-pity and sad and all of the things. And I was like, but you, <laughs> you basically but been you in, did it. <laughs> inviting me to do this for many years. And so I, I don't, you know, I do think it's dumb luck that I had a partner that wasn't then going to just turn around because, you know, he could have, he could have just turned around and been a, been really horrible about it, but that's just not his style. It's not who he is. And I, I lucked out in that way we were both willing to put our son at the center of all of our decisions and make sure that we did the best that we could for him. I hate to say it, like it's, it's dumb luck. There are things that you can do to set yourself up to go have this go in, in the right to quote the right direction. But also sometimes you just can't control what the other person's going to do. So were you already in the coaching space when, you know, when this, no. you were going through this or were you doing something else at the I time? was doing something else entirely. I was an actor. So I was doing something else oh. entirely. And so I got into this because when we got divorced and when things were going well, people kept asking me, like, how did you guys do that? how did you guys do that? And I was always telling them, like, we just put our son first. And, and then I watched a couple friends go through it and realized that they were just not, they, they were not doing that. <laughs> you know, one in particular was not putting her daughter at the center. And it was, it became very contentious very quickly. And so, you know, one of the things that my ex-husband said was, you know, we did so much work to try to get this marriage to work. And we did, we were in couples therapy. We were in group couples therapy. We were in, in, we each had our own individual therapist. We were both in 12 step programs. Like it was a lot Mm -hmm. of work being done. And 
you know, he said, we just, we worked so hard to try and make the marriage work. We're going to make this divorce work. And how long were you married for? Uh, we were only married five years. We were married five years. We were together for 10. No, it wasn't all that. It wasn't very long. Yeah. All well, that's considered. still, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I was married for 23 years mm. and we were together probably almost 28. But yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that you try to exhaust, you know, the therapy and at least try to make Absolutely. it. Yeah. At least understand why it's not working, right? Uh-huh. Sure. Totally. Yeah. And that, but what it did was it gave us tools, you know, all of that work didn't save the marriage, but it did give us tools to be able to get through the divorce in a healthy, as healthy a way as possible. So why do you think so many women who are, you know, successful in their professional endeavors or, you know, are strong, powerful personalities have confidence? Why do you think they, we, they all have some, we, many of us have issues with just making the move to make the decision to, to kind of uh, segue out of the marriage and, and end it. I mean, I know for me, I was worried about my three girls and, you know, I didn't want to, I don't know. I, I felt like I was a failure because this thing wasn't working out. And it mm -hmm. was just, I felt like you, that there was some psychological abuse involved in this, not maybe even intentional, it just was. Yeah. And I don't know, I still don't know whether I think he's a narcissist or not, but nevertheless, that's how I felt and it wasn't good mm -hmm. for my self-esteem. But sure. why do so many women struggle with this? And, you know, what can they do to kind of, what's the first thing they can do when they're deciding if whether they want to have a divorce that they should do so that they don't get paralyzed by fear. You know, I think the reason that any woman, whether they're successful, I mean, I think it's, I think all women, most women suffer from a similar thing, which is that, you know, I, I said I do and I, there was a fairy tale and I, you know, I, I think a lot of us get married without really doing the premarital counseling and work to, make sure that this is the right partnership, right? It's not even the right partner, but it just might not be the right partnership. Yes. Right. And so we tend to women in particular, you know, we have had this fantasy since we were little girls and, you know, we, we get to a certain age, our biological clocks are ticking and there's a, you know, there's often the sunk cost fallacy where, you know, I remember when I was like, you know, I don't think I, I don't know that I should do this. I think this is, might be a bad idea. I was like, I've invested five years with this guy. What do you mean this isn't a bad, this is, you know, like I've already invested five years and I'm 32. Like, what am I going to do? Reset the clock and like risk not having kids? Like that was kind of my thought process. And I think a lot of us have that. And then when it comes time to be like, mm, maybe this, maybe it's time to get out you know, we have, we also still have the sunk cost fallacy, like, oh my God, I've invested 10 years of my life in this relationship. But we also don't want to give up the dream. We don't want to give up the, you know, the life that we've built. I mean, this is yeah. like, we've, we've created something here. And so I think all women suffer from that a little bit. Like if I'm not a wife and a mother, who am I? And then for the, for the more successful women, you know, career driven women, that, that sort of thing. I mean, I think it's a, you know, it's a stigma. There's this sort of, we're going to be 
you know, with the the red D on our chests, right? That we're going to, you know, be stigmatized as a divorce. And, you know, look, I think divorce is exhausting. It's expensive. You go through all of this. And a lot of people also, listen, if I had to go through a divorce right now at this particular juncture in my career, I'd be like, oh my God, I don't have time. <laughs> like, how? How am I going to go through a divorce? Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today. The way that I structure my work, the way that I structure my book, the way that I think about this is that the first thing we have to do is the inner work. I know it's like it's the not sexy uh, work and it's not really the, you know, because what we want to do is look at the other person and be like, well, they're doing this and they're doing this and yada, yada, yada. Right. And is that good enough? Like, is that reason enough to go? Does that rise to a level that it's okay, acceptable for me to blow up my entire life, to blow up my children's life, right? But what we really need to do, the first thing we need to do is the self-work so that we can actually, when you're making what is mounts to the, one of the biggest decisions of your entire life, we have to know who's making the decision. We have to be able to connect with that part of us that is sort of required to make that decision, which is that, you know, our intuitive self, our deepest sense of knowing what's right and wrong for us. Um, we also need to connect with like, who am, who, who am I, what are my values? Like, who am I in the world? What do I stand for in this world? You know, those are the, those are the places to look first. So you, you have to do some deep diving into your psyche and into your emotions. I mean, I know for me, yeah. what really kind of pushed me over to making the decision to at least move to the United States. And then the divorce came after we were trying to do this crazy arrangement that didn't work. But anyway, for the sake of our youngest daughter, but uh, we wanted to see if we could get her out of high school before we made the move. But for whatever, I know that when I was going through therapy, my therapist was saying to me, you know, you have a victim mentality and you're not a victim. So if you want your life to change, then you have to stop thinking like a victim and you have to make some moves and understand why you feel like a victim. And I had a tendency for a long time to blame my ex-husband for everything that was wrong with that marriage. And, you know, like it takes two to tango, right? I mean, I had a role in it. So I needed to kind of be transparent about that with myself. But that took me a long time to get to that place. You know, I really, yeah, I really needed to kind of go through a few years of therapy before I could make the move. But I mean, I think you're right. Like if you don't, if you can't be introspective, so you are actually helping people to dig deep and understand their unhappiness. I mean, why do you think so many women are unhappy in their marriages? Because everyone will say, well, 
their marriage looks really fine. Like that, they look like the perfect couple. And then two days later, you're at a dinner party, you see these people and you think they have this most amazing marriage. And then you find out they're getting divorced. Like, why are so many women unhappy right now? I'm glad you asked that. There's a chapter in my book entitled, Why Are Women So Unhappy in Their Marriages? <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. We're, we're, let's get to the bottom of that because I'd really like to know um, the answer. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but the main, I mean, d- distilling it down is the fact that marriage benefits men and exhausts women. You know, they did a study, they, I don't know who they are, but there was a study that was done a number of years ago, and they sort of looked at who was the happiest population group of heterosexual people. Married men were the happiest. Of course. Then single women, then single men, and married women were the least happy population group. Well, that's because married women have to do, they step into this role. They have to do everything. (laughs) Yeah. And I say this a lot. I say this in my book. I say this on my podcast. I say this in all my writings because, again, I look Mm -hmm. at a lot of things through the financial lens. But 75% of all household chores and caregiving are done by women, even when they are the primary breadwinner. Mm -hmm. Even when they work and even when they make more than their spouse. So, Uh well, who the hell isn't going to be unhappy when, you know, they're trying to hold down a job, deal with all this stuff at the house, deal with their kids and, you know, have someone doing less than their share of the work. And so people, women are just exhausted, I think. They're utterly exhausted. And men are getting ahead in the workforce. They're getting paid more than we are. They have three hours more leisure time per week than we do. Right? Like we do all the work. We have carry the mental load. We're always thinking six steps ahead. You know, they used to say that women were better multitaskers yeah. than men, right? Like, oh, well, you know, yeah, but you're carrying all of this. You're juggling all of this because you're just a better multitasker. Turns out that neurobiologically speaking, we're not better multitaskers. It turns out that we just have more neural pathways connecting different parts of our brain that are that work for multitasking because we've had to do it. <laughs> like, right. I mean, it's right? conditioning, right? It's I mean, we've been yes. conditioned to be better. I always so I don't I mean, I'm sure I'm older than you by a lot, but way back in the 80s when I started practicing law and I got out of law school in 1983, there was that commercial called the Anjali commercial. And this woman said she could bring home the bacon, fry it up in the pan and right, never let you know, right. forget you're a man. And it was like this expectation. We defined this uh, feminist, you know, movement that, that we could, we could be professionals, we but could we have could also all. do it all. That's just not realistic. I mean, no. I say to people, you know, if you're going to advocate at work, advocate in your house and tell your husband to get up off his butt and, you know, contribute to getting the kids to school, making their breakfast and so on and so forth. But I want to ask you a question. Is this a dynamic of a purely heterosexual relationship or do you find this dynamic in non-heterosexual relationships? I do. I mean, I've worked with, a, with you know, a handful of lesbians over the years. Really, this is, look, the patriarchy is not gender specific, but it's certainly gendered, right? And I think all of this is a function of the patriarchy. That being said, I've worked with a lot of uh, lesbian couples that have similar dynamics, right? right? Because there is one partner who may be more benefited by the, from the labor of the other and, th- you know, like that. 
So I think it, it infiltrates, like we live in a patriarchy. There's nobody that's not affected. There's nobody that's not impacted. Right. I mean, it's the historical narrative. It's been ingrained in our heads. Absolutely. Um, and I don't think you escape it by the nature of being gay. <laughs> right. I mean, not only do you not escape it, but for women, right. I don't know what it's like for gay men, but for women, we are impacted by this, no matter what our sexuality and in term, you know, and if you're a lesbian, you've got an entire culture that's that's discriminating against you even more, right? You're a woman and you're gay. Right. And this dynamic does play out in, I do see it playing out in lesbian relationships with the women that I've worked with. So I, like, I felt like my husband was very unavailable to me, my ex-husband, and I was just kind of trying to do it all. And maybe part of that was because I didn't reach out enough. I don't know. I tried, but may, and I maybe I didn't do it good enough or deep enough or whatever. But how do you advise people when they're just fed up, they're exhausted, they think they should be happy, but they're not. So how do you get them to the point where it's they feel okay about making this decision and then, mm-hmm. you know, having to go through that kind of uncomfortable period of the actual divorce and then come out the other end. I mean, what are you what are you coaching them to do, like, or to think about? Um, well, it very much depends on the circumstances, right? So, but, you know, we do the deep personal work. And then I want to look at the systemic stuff. I want to look at what is the dynamic in your marriage? How much of the mental load are you carrying? Are you being abused, right? right. If it's abuse, I name that for people because it's sometimes really hard to see it, especially when you've been kind of in it for so long and there's so much gaslighting and you don't know what's what. And so helping women name the abuse that they're experiencing is really a useful tool. And then helping them also understand that that's not the now the time to go back to your spouse and be like, so I just learned that you're actually an abuser. And so now like clearly with that information, you're going to want to change, right? Like that doesn't work that way. And you know, helping them see the reality that like, okay, if this is what's happening in your marriage, this is not, this is not fixable. Right. This is not solvable. There are, there are things that are solvable. There are things that are not. Communication is something that we can work on, right? The management of domestic labor, we can work on. Abuse is not a relationship issue. It is a, an abuser issue. Yes. You know, and look, if it's if there's no abuse happening and just everything feels imbalanced and you're exhausted and you're at the end of your rope, I will advise my clients to have this conversation. Get into therapy, get into couples therapy as soon as you possibly can. If your partner refuses to go to therapy, which I see happen over and over and over yeah. and over again, then nothing will change. They don't think there's a problem. Of course they don't think there's a problem. <laughs> because they're benefiting, right? Because they're happy. So why would they want to go to therapy to fix a problem that they don't experience? And, you know, that's an empathy problem. If your spouse can't hear you, right? And you have to be able to communicate this effectively, keeping it in eye language. I am exhausted, right? This is not a, you are a problem and you don't do anything in the house and what are you going to do to fix it? This is a, we have a problem in our, in our marriage. How do you know when your spouse is a narcissist? Oh, well, first of all, they won't have any empathy whatsoever. Well, they'll twist everything, right? Everything will be your fault. They will spend their entire, you know, they'll gaslight you. Anytime you reveal something that is a vulnerable vulnerability, 
Um, they'll probably use it against you at some point. Narcissism is a spectrum. So there's just sort of like benign narcissism, like the people that are going to, every time you have a conversation with them, they twist it around to be about them. And then there's, you know, further along the spectrum, there's more malignant. There's people who are, you know, compulsive cheaters. They're just trying to get as much as possible from, they're trying to suck the marrow out of the world, leaving the rest of the world like crippled with no marrow, <laughs> right? Everyone around them. So how do you, I mean, how do you define gaslighting? Because we mm-hmm. talk about that a lot and, you know, we use that term a lot. Yeah. But in a marriage, you know, when when someone's really trying to undermine you, what does that look like? How What should somebody be looking out for and that falls into that genre there? Yeah. Gaslighting is a very specific uh, term, uh, which is has become, thank God, we're like shining a light on it to the point where it was Webster's word of the year last year for 2022. Gaslighting is sort of a systematic undermining of your own reality to the point that it makes you start to doubt your own reality. So this could be if someone, you know, you say, you know, when we had that conversation the other day, it really hurt my feelings. I never said that. I didn't say that. That's so weird that you would remember that. Like I, I never said that wait, what are you talking about? Like, I totally remember that. You said blah, 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 blah. No, I didn't. Right. And they sound really reasonable about it. And you start to go, wait a minute. Am I, am I crazy? <laughs> like I've got to record all my conversations with this guy from now on. And also, you know, one of the symptoms is that you do start to get a little brain foggy. One of the symptoms of emotional abuse and being in an abusive relationship is that you do get brain fog. So then you start to be like, well, I don't really remember things. But if you start to feel like you have to record your conversations to remember what happened in your relationship, it's not a good sign for the relationship. It sound, that sounds to me like abuse. Yeah. But the point of gaslighting is to get you to doubt your own reality and your own experiences and make you think that maybe you're the crazy one. Right, right, right. That's the point of it. Um, so it's not just lying. So... People will say like, you know, oh, he's lying to me. He's gaslighting me. And it's like, well, he might be, but lying in and of itself is not gaslighting. It's lying to you with the intent to make you doubt your own reality. Right. And then you start losing confidence and you start to think that maybe all this is your fault and it's probably not. (laughs) Right. And over time, the long-term effects of this are that you people, I have, and I've seen this with clients where they actually start to lose their grip on reality. Yeah. That's so sad. They actually start, right? And it's, it's a, it becomes a mental health crisis um, because they can't trust their own experience of the world. Yeah, that's that, and that's so sad. And I mean, especially if they've got kids, they're just having a whole meltdown and the kid, you know, the kids are going to suffer and, and there's be no improvement in the situation. So it's terrible. Mm -hmm. So can you help women like identify that and say, okay, Hundred percent. You know that's what's what going on. I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a domestic violence victims advocate, so I am trained in helping women with this as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a huge part of what I do. I mean, because this is so important. I think so many women are just you know they're trapped or they start to think everything is their fault because we're kind of yep. trained to think that you know we should be accommodators and nurturers and we should be always trying to fix something that doesn't work, and so. You know, and that's impossible if someone's a narcissist. Uh, exactly. And to that end, right, the narcissist is always telling you, well, if you would just do this, 
then everything would be fine. If you would just do that, then everything would be fine. The problem is that it's a moving target. And so then you start, again, feel like a crazy person because you're you're trying to hit a target that you're like, I, I hit it. I know I hit it. And he's like, mm, not quite. Or just like, mm, not quite the right way. And, you know, how much does infidelity kind of play into our unhappiness? Is there, Do you see a lot of that as a, you know, as kind of the forefront of things? How, how, how much a part of all of our unhappiness is infidelity playing into this? I mean, I see so much of it because a narcissist, especially with narcissists, right? Because a narcissist, they have no sense of self zero sense of self. The narcissistic wound is a fracture of that. And so they don't have a sense of self. And so they're constantly trying to get their sense of self and their meaning out of somebody else, right? That's sort of their their codependence, right? They're trying to get their sense of self from other people. And every time they meet someone, they're like, oh, you're the one. You're the one. I have this rush of feeling, right? And like, I feel so good about myself and I feel confident and I feel the swagger because you are going to fix me. And then when the person doesn't, because they can't, because it's not their job and it necessarily dissipates because that's (laughs) humanity, right? They're going to immediately find someone someone else to make, give them that same feeling. And so infidelity with narcissists is, it's, it is an enormous issue. And, you know, now with the internet and Facebook and old flames and all that stuff, like it, it is rampant, rampant. And I have a chapter in my book called, is he uh, a sex addict or a cheater? Because, you know, what ends up happening is they get caught. Right. And then they're like, oh, I'm a sex addict. I'm a sex right, addict. I can't right. help it. It's not my fault. <laughs> right. right. But, you know, do they go to treatment? Do they go to like, do they go to rehab? Do they go to SLA? Uh, maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. So that's so funny that they use that as kind of a defense. I'm a sex addict and mm-hmm. thinking that might solve the problem of their dysfunctional marriage. Wow. Well, they use it as an excuse to be able to keep doing it. And how does it differ between men and women. I mean, obviously women also can be unfaithful. What is, is it a different equation for women? Yes, I think it is. I think men and women are unfaithful for different reasons. Um, I think overall, right, this is a general, broad generalization. Men tend to be unfaithful because they love the attention. It makes them feel like a stud. You know, home life is kind of boring, right? right? They, whatever. And they, but they want to feel that way. They want to feel like the patriarch and the family man and the husband and the father, right? But they also want to feel like the stud that they felt like in their twenties, right? And so they're seeking that excitement, that ego stroking, and other things um, from <laughs> from outside the marriage. Because also, like, often, like, we're too tired for to be doing any of that, right? <laughs> like, I'm not stroking your ego anymore, and I'm certainly not having sex with you. I'm not stroking <laughs> anything else, baby. So. I'm not stroking anything else because I'm tired. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, right? And so, and women, I think their infidelity is much more often uh, more emotional, we fall into emotional affairs. It's like somebody sees us. Yes. Somebody thinks we're beautiful and sexy. Somebody thinks that we are, you know, interesting and uh, they pay attention to us. And we 
we really enjoy that feeling when we, I mean, as most people do, when we haven't had that for a while, that feels really good. Yes, it does. I mean, I think you're spot on with this. I do think that women have a harder time separating out physicality from emotion. And and we, and often I think when, and I'm not making excuses for women. I'm not saying, you know, one's better than the no, other. No, infidelity is infidelity. But yeah. the reality is, is if you feel isolated in your marriage, you're not appreciated and somebody kind of looks at you and shows you that, I can see how that would be very comforting if you're in an unhappy marriage and you just don't know how to get out of it. It's almost like an escape valve. It's not about your ego. So, I mean, one of the things I was like wondering about too, because when you mentioned like sex addict and I listened to all these crazy podcasts about, you know, uh, these untold secrets and then women find out like they're their husbands who look, look perfect and everyone loves and all of a sudden like the guy's like a pedophile, you know, and or has all uh-huh. these images of young girls on their phone or whatever. Like how does porn fit into this? Is this something that is a disaster in marriages or is it an element in any of this or it has nothing to do with it? No, I think it's a pretty big disaster. I mean, look, I think that Poor, I know couples, I know women who are like, yeah, we, we love to watch porn together. It's part of the sexual union and journey that they have as a couple. Right. But when your husband's sitting in the basement watching porn all night, like not so much. That's not part of the marriage. That's not part of your sex life. That's outside of the marriage. You know, people are like, is porn cheating? And I'm like, well, I don't, I mean, I don't know. Like you didn't, did you define that in your premarital counseling that you should have done? Like what constitutes cheating and how do you feel about porn, right? These are conversations we should have had. But I think it's extremely detrimental to a marriage when, first of all, any man who is spending hours a day watching porn and or playing video games, that is time not spent with the family. Right. That is time not doing dishes, labor, making lunches, what have you. But when you also have this really unreasonable expectation of what women are like and what, and what, what women like and how to have sex with us, it, it's just, it's awful. And it's desensitizing. Yeah. You know, there's all this research done that, you know, you know, men have increased instances of impotence because they're like, it's not, all that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, when they're with us, we're just like actual normal, real people. And they're not turned on by that. So, I mean, it's escapism and it's um, fantasy, you know, and all that other stuff. And it's also can border on, you know, obviously if somebody is choosing to sit around and do that instead of interact with you, who is, you know, you're their partner. I mean, frankly, I would find that to be a bit of a red flag. So I'd be like, yeah, I'm not so sure about this, dude. You know, you need to get your shit together and not be doing that so much or at all. Yeah. And they don't, they tend to, they don't do that in the beginning of the relationship, right? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. They start doing that after like, we're not as exciting and, you know, and so, but yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem, huge problem. I want to ask you one more question about infidelity, because this is something I've thought about a lot and I and I don't I don't even know if I figured out what I think might th- might be the answer is to it. But so when women find out that someone's been unfaithful, but maybe they've just been habitually unfaithful, and I'm I'm just kind of like thinking Bill Clinton unfaithful, you know. And and women wives ultimately forgive them and stay in this marriage for the long haul. Part of me feels like 
oh, okay, well, maybe they, they worked it out and they have an agreement. And the other part of me feels like, how can you really, like, if it's one time, maybe you get over it, you talk about it and you try to work it out. But if it's like multiple times, how do you rationalize that and stay in the marriage? Like, is it really going to be a good inner, you know, two-way marriage or are you just settling because you just don't have the balls to leave? I don't know. <laughs> well, it depends on the work that you do, right? I was actually really surprised a while ago. I remember reading an interview with um, Hillary and she said that, that she'd never been, they'd never done, they'd never been to therapy at all. And I was like, wow, that's wait, very what? telling. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe I, I know like, the answer to that one then. Like, wow. I mean, eventually I think Bill, you know, ceased to yeah, be cal- able to do down. all of <laughs> Had some heart issues. Down. He had, yeah. You know, was, right. Exactly. She waited him out. Was like, <laughs> right. She did. Right. And listen, I think their, their marriage was more than just this love union. I think it was, but it's also, it was, there was a, there's a business arrangement that's inherent in these kinds of yes. marriages. But anyway, I digress. I think that there's a couple of things. There is very specific affair recovery or betrayal recovery therapy that needs to happen. And it is a very specific process. And it, you know, when I, again, I have a chapter about this in my book. When I can't wait to read this book. (laughs) (laughs) It's all in there. Um, But when you go into, you know, betrayal, you know, first of all, the both parties have to want to be there right? You do not go into any therapy with anybody who is currently active in their addiction or in an affair because they're not in therapy with you, right? Right. There's something else going on outside. Um, But if your partner is willing to do that work, then there's a lot of steps that have to happen. There's disclosures, right? Where you're rebuilding trust. You're having to confess to everything you've ever done so that there are no more questions. There are no more like what ifs. There's a whole process. What I see all the time, right, is that women are like, he had an affair. He said he's sorry. Like, this is the one affair that she caught him in. Um, he said he's sorry or whatever. And then and then she's not over it because, and he's like, oh my God, why aren't you over right. it yet? I said, I'm sorry. It's like, that's not, that's not a fair recovery work. If it's serial cheating and there is an addiction present, right? If there's an actual addiction, then there's also very specific work that needs to be done around the addiction. Like how did, what is the trauma? Usually, usually there's some childhood sexual trauma that, that sort of precipitated this and, you know, dealing with that, but you deal with that in, in the individual therapy. So the person who did the betraying has to do their own work in their own recovery but the relationship recovery work is all about rebuilding trust. Right. Right. So it can't be like, well, you, I had this sexual trauma, so you have to forgive me. It's like, no, I, you have to earn my trust again. And part of earning that trust again is you doing the work around your trauma in your own therapy. Right. Because the betrayal recovery work is about the betrayal. The addiction recovery work is about the addiction, and that's really important. But we're here to build trust again. Right. Which sounds like a pretty steep uh, hill to climb. So, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I have seen people do it beautifully, right? I've seen people do this, and it's hard. And it's not that things don't flare up from time to time, of course they do, but 
you'll listen, you know, when your partner is really coming at the recovery work in earnest. Yeah. And you know, when they're like just saying something to try to get by. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we know in our hearts, right? We know. We, we can feel it. A hundred percent. And right, exactly. Which comes back to why that internal work is so important because we got to connect with that part of us that actually does know. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the thing is we have to start with ourselves and figure out why we're unhappy in a marriage. And then, and then just, you know, then from there, after we do our own deep dive with someone like you, like you can help people really understand this. And I think the one thing I want to finish on, because I think this is something that is really prevalent, is that, um, you know, many women try to have this divorce conversation over and over again, and they've had it numerous times, but they just never leave. It's just, they know they're unhappy. Their, their husband knows they're unhappy. Maybe everybody else in the world knows they're unhappy, but they just don't ever leave. So how can they make it stick? If there's any like one or two things you can say to women about, you know, how to like actually make it stick because in their hearts, they feel it's the best thing. Again, there's a chapter in my book about it. There you go, ladies. (laughs) Because having the conversation, yeah, listen, I got it all covered. Having the conversation is a, it's a very specific conversation, right? And what tends to happen is that we say, I want a divorce and they go, wait, I'll go to therapy. I'll do anything. Hold on a minute. Right. And they make all the promises in the world that they're going to change. And then we go, oh, okay. He really understands. He really sees it this time. And then two months go by and everything's back to the same because he hasn't actually gone to therapy. He didn't make, here's the thing. If someone says, I'll go to therapy, I swear I'll go to therapy with you. Then either you make the appointment or you say, great, find the therapist because they're the one that's on the hook. Right. 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 They usually don't, but if they do great, but so you want to watch what they do, not what they say. The other, the biggest thing about this conversation is that it does tend to get derailed by, well, what, what, what are you talking about? What, like, how are we going to do this? And what about the kids? And this is, you know, divorce is bad for kids. And how are we going to divide the, you know, the right. who's going to keep finances, the house? Well, yeah. Like that. So this conversation has one objective, one, which is to get the information across that you are no longer going to remain married to this person. You're not asking permission. You're not asking for agreement. You're not asking for understanding. I think that's one of the biggest problems. Like I told my husband and he said, no, um, he doesn't get to say no. Right. <laughs> you can't make, I've heard this one all, a million times. You can't make you a unilateral decision about our marriage. It's like, well, no, actually that literally I can. Yeah, uh, I can. <laughs> that's why we have no fault divorce, right? right? I literally can. Um, and until they- Take that away from us, which they're yeah, trying to do. Probably next. Um, right, well, of course it will. But, you know, while we're at it, while we can do it, <laughs> right? Yeah. We, anyway, so you can make a unilateral decision about your marriage. So hardly anyone ever in the history of this ever was like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes they do, but it's pretty rare. So you don't, this is not an opportunity to make any decisions. This conversation is not the decision-making conversation. This is the, when he says like, what do we do with the house? I say, listen, we have a lot of time. We have a lot of decisions to make. We've got really big decisions to make. Right now, I just want to make sure that you are clear that this is my final decision. And 
that I will be moving forward with divorce. And then they're going to want to talk about something else and they're going to have some other thing that they're freaked out about or, you know, or like they're going to start yelling at you and they're going to start to, they're going to want to litigate your marriage now. Well, you didn't do this and you didn't do that. And you're saying and blah, blah, blah. Like, listen, you know what? You and I are going to have very different narratives about how we got to this place. You're entitled to yours. I'm entitled to mine. I'm not interested in rehashing any of this right now. I just want to make sure you're clear that I'm going to be moving forward with divorce. And let me, and I promise this is my last question. I have so many. Um, okay. How many <laughs> women are just so reticent, even though they're like ready and they just want this to be done, but they're so afraid of the money end of it. And then they're threatened because if they do say they want a divorce, you know, the other person mm-hmm. can get very belligerent and can also hide information and start doing some very shady things. Yeah. You know, that's mm-hmm. why we have forensic accountants. How do you make a woman maybe realize that, hey, yeah, the financial thing is a, is a fearful maybe or uncertain, but a lifetime of feeling this unhappy and being kind of almost yeah. beaten down, it, it's really not good. I mean, it's, it's going to be worse than the financial consequences because those you can fix sure. down the road. Right. And, you know, one of the things I say is like, you know, look, if you are fearful of this, if you're worried, concerned that this is going to be an issue, then let's like preempt this before you have the conversation. Make sure you have all your doc, as much documentation as you have access to. If you don't have access to all of your accounts and if you don't have access to all the financials from the marriage, then there's a problem yes. to begin with, right? So you need to have access. So so download the latest statements before you have the conversation so you actually know what what there is. The other thing is that you might want to have a consultation with an attorney before you have the conversation so that you actually know what your rights are. Because I'm not saying hire attorney. I'm not saying put down money for a retainer or anything like that. I'm saying go have a consultation, know what your rights are, because what abusers in particular love to do is say, I'm going to say, you're never going to see your children again. Yeah. I'm, you're not going to, you're never going to have, you know, you're never going to see any money. I'm going to wipe you out. Right. And what you want to do is have enough information and legal knowledge and to be able to be like, no, you're not like, okay, but that's not how divorce right. works. Right. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. Right. And I see a lot of women who's like, but he said he was going to take my kids away. And I'm like, well, that doesn't work that way. (laughs) Like it literally doesn't work that way. And so you want to have as much information as possible so that when they make threats, you can just be like, that's not how this works. I'm like, I'm sorry that you feel that you need to make those threats, but that's actually not how divorce works. And you just dissipate their power immediately. But I also want to acknowledge that in this economy, you and I both live in Southern California where- Everything is expensive. Real estate is out of control. I couldn't move, right? I've I've lived in the same house for, you know, 14 years and I've rented it for 14 years. I I can't move. No, things are very expensive here. It's ridiculous. Things are ridiculous. And so there are financial considerations to think about. And so, you know, I'm not saying you need to stay in a miserable marriage for the money, but I'm saying you want to do as much due diligence as possible to make sure that you're, you know, this, you're going to be able to survive, you know, or, or start making other plans, like look for other single moms to live with, or, you know, talk to your parents that, you know, like there, there's a lot to consider because this is not, it's not 
tenable for a lot of people. Yeah. And I mean, I think the thing is, if you if you can have a consultation with a divorce or a, a certified divorce financial analyst, they can look at all your assets and, uh, and, and depending on yep. the state you're in, whether it's a community property state or an equitable distribution state, you know, you can have a plan as to kind of what you're going to come out with and, and have a little bit of an idea of what that's going to look right. like. But I think the long and the short of it is really to prevent any of this from happening, you should be talking about all this before you even get married and maybe have a prenup because I do think if you can settle all that from the get-go, then the end game when things do go, you know, they might go awry, you've got at least a game plan going as to how that's going to be split up. But in the meantime, for the rest of us who had to somehow muddle through the divorce, which, you know... In retrospect, for me, when I was going through it, it was one of the worst periods of my life. And I, I, I mean, it was hard on my kids. It was hard on me. I was hard financially. And in the end, I'm glad that it happened because I'm, I'm more self-realized and happier and more confident than I've ever been, you know, and at the ripe old age that I'm at. But I feel really good about how I came out of it. But there was a really rocky period and there was also a lot of guilt and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we're all kind of soldiering through now. My daughter got married last year. Everyone's at the wedding. You know, do I still have some residual bitterness? Yeah, I do. But, you know, also that's just my problem to work on over the course of my life. But I would say if you are really stuck then you need to know about Kate Anthony because what she's doing is so important. (laughs) And I don't really know anyone out there who's doing it. So she's got this amazing podcast, you know, the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. So at the very least, check that out. But you need to buy the book, The D Word, Making the Ultimate Decision About Your Marriage. And then also, what? how can they like get coaching from you or online coaching or private coaching? Tell us how people can find you and get you to help them get through this horrible time if it's horrible. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, my website is kateanthony.com and everything is there. I work privately one-on-one with women all over the world. I have a group coaching program as well. And I've got some new stuff coming in the new year so that, you know, with the book launch, maybe shifting some stuff up a bit. I'm not sure what that's going to look like yet, but um, it'll all be on my website when it happens and over on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. And I'll just keep updating people as I figure out what's next. Do you help people after their divorce too? Yeah, I do. I help women. There's a lot of women I work with that are, you know, on the other side of the divorce, but they're still co-parents. So I'm a, I'm a certified co-parenting specialist as well. So I help people with the co-parenting aspect of it. I'm also a certified high conflict divorce coach. So I can help people get through, go, you know, strategize as they're going through it, making sure that they're, you know, understanding the family court system, which is yeah. Not number one, not favorable to women. Number two, just a complete shit yeah, show. Crazy. So, um, and and understanding how that works for everybody. So, yes, I, I work with people sort of on all sides, like before, during, and after. <laughs> so this, you know, Kate's your go-to person, and we've talked about this before on the podcast. When you're putting your together your team, when you're thinking about a mm-hmm. divorce, I always say you should have a therapist or a coach. And I mean, Kate would be a great addition to that because you need someone who's outside your brain and your emotions to help you. You know, I wish I had had that. 
I was so very emotional during my court litigation because we actually had a litigated divorce. And sometimes I think my emotions ended up hurting me more than helping me in the whole, you know, that, and I'm a lawyer. I was a lawyer for many years. So I, I think that all went out the window because I was just so angry, hurt, mad. I mean, the cocktail of emotions was deadly. So having someone like Kate on your team could be a game changer, not only for your psychological health, but for the outcome of your divorce as well. Absolutely. Yes, for sure. For sure. Well, Kate Anthony is my new hero. I love this. I love that she's doing (laughs) this work in this space because this is so important because, hey, if you have a divorce that really doesn't end well for you, it could affect your financial uh, life for the rest of your life. And it also can affect how you move on in your life. So all I'm saying is, this is something that's a really good service that she's doing for all of us out there. And I would highly recommend that you check her out. And Kate, thank you so much for your time today and your expertise and your wisdom. I think a lot of people are going to walk away from this and it's going to give them food for thought. And hopefully if they're on the fence or they're scared or they don't know what to do, they'll reach out to you. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I hope so. Please absolutely reach out. Until next time, guys, uh, thanks for joining us today. And don't forget, if you're on the fence, if you're wondering, should I stay or should I go? You need to reach out to Kate because she's going to help you figure that out. Thank you for listening today to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And I would really appreciate if you could also rate and review it. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Fiscal Feminist or check out the website FiscalFeminist.com. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.